God, here we are. Lord, I, I feel really inadequate this morning because the text we're going to look at today is so beautiful. It's so powerful. It's so life-changing. It, it's what matters most in all the universe. And God, our words fall woefully short of, of in any way describing it. But God, I, I ask that, that you would come through the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would touch our hearts this morning, Lord, that we wouldn't just go through the motions of looking at the Bible, and, but that this morning we would be changed by your word. Father, we invite your Holy Spirit to speak to our hearts this morning. May it be your voice that we hear. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. It was 2008. I had just graduated from Pacific Union College with my Bachelor's of Theology degree. That meant that I had spent the past two years, I was completing my Bachelor's, I had switched majors, I had spent the last two years studying the Bible, studying how to do ministry, studying various things about how to, to work in a church environment, and I was excited to go and to change the world. So, as I began to plan... We were, that fall, we planned to do a special meeting on Bible prophecy. It was up in Milpitas. I was a part of something called the Youth Evangelism Team. I was actually, Leah and I were the co-leaders of that team for two years. And as we planned to lead this, we said, we're going to start off with the Bay Area. We're going to go there and we're going to take flyers out to the community and and we're going to attract a lot of young people and young adults to come and to want to hear about Jesus from Bible prophecy. So we planned for several weeks for this. Finally, the day came. In fact, we even went into the mountains and before the two weeks of planning, we had like a week fasting and praying and Bible study and just like team building with our team together. And then we got to the church and we spent several weeks preparing. We sent out flyers. We passed out flyers. We gave invitations to the young adults who were in the church. It was a, a church that had a lot, of, a lot of young people in it. Then came opening night. We were anticipating this crowd that, that was going to be there, that finally we're going to get the opportunity to change the world. There's going to be all these people coming to hear about Jesus. And that night... I don't remember exactly how many it was. It was between four and two, I think, who showed up that night. Besides the team, there was four of us there. So really, there was about eight who were there. But as the meeting progressed and we met night after night, pretty soon we were down to two people who came consistently. You know what that did to me? (laughs) I said, man, I'm a failure. I'm not cut out to do this. Why am I even here? What's the point? If two people are just going to come out to this, I mean, somebody else could be doing a far better job. You know, we've been talking about being gifted. We've been talking about the body of Christ and how God gifts each of us in different and varied ways that we all have different gifts, but when we press together through the love of God, He wants to use us to impact the world, to represent Jesus to the world. When Paul concludes the three sections on spiritual gifts, he goes the same direction each and every time. It's pretty fascinating when you read it. If you look in Romans chapter 12, where Romans chapter 12 goes through the different gifts, it's a briefer section there, but immediately afterward, it goes into this. It says, 
Let your love be without hypocrisy. And the following verses are powerful, talking about how to love people. Then in in Ephesians chapter 4, at the end of Ephesians chapter 4, this chapter that talks about that God has gifted people to be pastors, to be evangelists, to all of these different spiritual gifts that God has given people. Chapter 5 and verse 1 says, so I think it's verse 1, now walk in love. But go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, chapter 12, where we've been looking at the spiritual gifts. We've been looking at the body for the past two weeks. We talked last week about how Christ is the head of the body and how without the head, without your brain, you can't even move a finger. You have no hope of life without him being in complete control. He is the head to bring us to the fullness of the gospel plan. But after going through all of this, talking about the incredible gifts that God has given, verse 31 says this, but earnestly desire the best gifts. Earnestly desire. Like, you should earnestly seek out, zealously desire gifts. I want to encourage you. We're come, we've come to this end of a series talking about being gifted. And God doesn't want you to stop here. You, you could say, well, let's, let's go on and let's talk about something else. But Paul says to earnestly desire these gifts, to earnestly be seeking after them, to be asking God to gift you. I, I plead with you daily, ask God for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Moment by moment, be pleading with God for the baptism of the Holy Spirit because we need these gifts in order to be the body of Christ. But it doesn't stop there. It says, but earnestly desire the best gifts. Earnestly desire to do great things for God's kingdom. And yet I show you a more excellent way. Wait a second, Paul. You said, first of all, that spiritual gifts, I don't want you to be ignorant about them. And, and that this is going to be the way of representing my fu- Jesus' fullness on this planet. And that there's all this glory involved in spiritual gifts. And to desire the best gifts. And then it says, but I show you a more excellent way. So what is this more excellent way? What is this that could be even better than being filled with the Spirit and being gifted specifically for ministry? Verse 1 of chapter 13. Something that should have clicked in my mind as I long to be preaching to thousands. So though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels. Pause right there. How many different languages are there on this planet? Do you know? A lot. How many of you, I'm just curious of this, how many of you know more than one language? Everybody that knows more than one language, raise your hand. It's okay if it's Pig Latin. You can raise your hand. All right. How many of you know more than two languages? Okay. More than three languages. All right. More than four languages. Azalea's hand's still up and Obed's hand is still up. More than four languages. More than five languages. Right. Okay, so in this room, nobody knows more than five languages. There are 6,909 languages, it's estimated, on this planet. 6,909. And Paul here is saying, even though I speak with the tongues, the languages of men, even though I could speak every single language on this planet, be able to communicate perfectly, and we know it's perfectly because he goes on to say, and of angels. Now imagine with the myriads and myriads of angels that are listed in Revelation. I mean, how many different languages is it possible that, well, 
Angels probably speak the same language, but they speak it perfectly. Their language is without error, right? Because they're perfect beings. So though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. Don't let this pass you by. He says, even though you could perfectly describe the gospel of Jesus Christ, even though you could go to your neighbor and you could give them a Bible study that is perfectly lined out to describe everything that's beautiful about Jesus, but you don't love that neighbor, you're just going to be like a gong that's sounding, like a clanging cymbal, and it's going to make no difference in their lives whatsoever. Paul's showing us that there's a still more excellent way. It's not that we shouldn't desire spiritual gifts. We should desire them. We should desire them earnestly, but there's a more excellent way. Look at verse 2. This is astounding. We've read it before, and yet don't let it pass you by how beautiful and how powerful this is. It says, "All and though I have the gift of prophecy, wouldn't you like to be able to tell the future at this point? Or even just to be able to say, hey, this is what God is saying to you today. If you could be able to, to walk up to your, your mom or your brother and say, hey, this is the message of God to you. That'd be a pretty powerful thing to be able to have the gift of prophecy. But though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries. We have a lot of mysteries, don't we? There's a lot of things that we don't understand even just about the gospel. Though I understand all mysteries and all knowledge. Not only that. And though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains. Imagine having that kind of faith. The faith that no matter how big the challenge you're facing, that you could cry out to God and know that that's going to be moved in an instant like a mountain. What could be more valuable than that? It says, though you have all of those things, but have not love, I am nothing. Nothing. Do we really believe that? <laughs> if, 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 if you had all knowledge, if you had all mysteries, if, if, if you could do all of these things, do you really believe that your life would be valueless? What is Paul getting to here? I mean, surely you could do a lot of good things, couldn't you? Surely you could even help a lot of people. In fact, that's what he goes on to say in verse 3. He says, And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, this could make a massive difference in society, couldn't it? You know, without getting into politics, I heard that recently a bunch of, of wealthy people, they wrote a letter saying, Hey, we want you to raise our taxes so that we have to give more. There's, there's, there's people that we talked about recently who are some of the wealthiest billionaires in America who have all agreed to give away 99% of their wealth. That's valuable. That makes a difference in people's lives, doesn't it? It says, though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, though I give my body to be burned. So even if I lay down my life for somebody, But have not love, it profits me nothing. There's no benefit to it. It's really meaningless in the end. This past week, I had a friend who uh, 
He used to be actively involved in church, and he's kind of gone away from that. But he wrote something to me, and he, he said, if I have a particular, and he put, quote, sin in my life, and I am able to resist that sin by my own self-control, said, then wouldn't I be overcoming sin by the works of the flesh? He kind of threw it out there as a challenge. And I began to pray about that, saying, you know, what's an answer to that? I mean, if, if I just have really good self-control and I'm able to order my life in such a way that I, I don't commit sins, then does that make me a, a good Christian or a good person? I mean, there's a lot of people who say, you don't need religion in your life. You just be a good person. Just give your wealth away. Live your life for others. And that's all that matters. As I wrote back to him, uh, I wrote back to him about what love is really about. What we find here in this chapter that love really entails. And at the end of that, he said, wow, that's a revelation of something that I have never recognized before. You see, Paul goes on to describe what love looks like. Love is something deeper than we recognize as a society. We throw love out there as something so trite. I love this. I love that. And I use it like that all the time. But look at how Paul goes on to describe love. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, he says this in verse 4. Love suffers long. Just pause right there. Love suffers long. You'll notice in the other translations, it'll say, love is patient. What is this saying about love? You see, this isn't just talking about the feeling of infatuation that we might feel towards somebody that we've begun to date. This isn't just talking about the feeling that we feel towards that bowl of ice cream. I love that bowl of ice cream. This is something more than that, isn't it? Because it's saying love suffers long. Love is patient. Love doesn't mind its schedule being interrupted. A tall man walked into a hospital room. He, it was in the midst of the Civil War. He had been walking through uh, the hospital, visiting various people. And the, the young man who was laying there on the bed looked up at him and said, well, first of all, the, the tall man said to him, is there anything that I can do for you? The young man looked up at him and said, please write a letter to my mother. So the man sat down and began to write. As the young man dictated to him, My dearest mother, I was badly hurt while doing my duty and I won't recover. Don't sorrow too much for me. My, may God bless you and Father. Kiss Mary and John for me. The young man was too weak to go on at that point. So the tall gentleman signed the letter for him and then put a little postscript. Written for your son by Abraham Lincoln. Asking to see the note, the soldier was astonished as he said, Are you really Abraham Lincoln? Are you really the President of the United States? Did you just write this letter for me? Yes, was the quiet answer. Now, is there anything else that I could do for you? The lad feebly replied, Will you please hold my hand? I think it would help to see me through to the end. The story concludes that Abraham held that young man's hand until he died. 
Abraham Lincoln was willing, according to this story, to have his schedule interrupted. Love suffers long. That's not the way that we want our day to go, though, is it? When you wake up in the morning and you have your to-do list, and you hop in the car, you're on your way to work, and there's a traffic jam, what is it that stirs inside of you? Is it feelings of love and joy and peace? Or is it tapping the steering wheel or slamming the steering wheel or saying things to people? Love suffers long. It endures. It, it's patient in the midst of having a schedule interrupted, having difficulties arrive in our lives. It goes on to say, love is kind. Love is patient and love is kind. Love, love is kind in that it gives. It's constantly thinking of others' good. I love what it says in uh, the Review and Herald, May 11, 1886, talking about this more excellent way that Paul is describing through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The excellence and value of pure love consists in its efficiency to do good and to do nothing else but good. Whatsoever is done out of pure love, be it ever so little or contemptible in the sight of men, is wholly fruitful. For God measures more with how much love one works than the amount he does. Love is of God. There's an incredible value in love. There's an incredible value in patience and in kindness. And maybe you've had this happen before. Well, you'll hear somebody who, who will tell you all these amazing things about God, and then they'll go on and they'll live in a way that treats you miserably <laughs> or that is totally unkind. They're totally impatient with you. And you begin to wonder, do they really love? This chapter is challenging. This chapter reveals to us that our witness has to go deeper than just our knowledge. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. This tells us that, that people are going to have more than us. And, and as we look at that in our life, love doesn't respond in a way of saying, man, I just wish that I was as successful as that person. I just wish that I had what they have. And honestly, I have to look at my own heart in this. In ministry, it's saying, when I go to speak at a meeting and there's two people there, and I know that another pastor is speaking to thousands of people, love doesn't envy. Love is about those two people and what's happening in those, their hearts. And you know, those two people kept coming back to each and every meeting they kept coming back night after night and we developed a friendship with them. A friendship that's lasted to this day. We got to the end of those meetings and they hadn't necessarily fully committed to joining our church. They hadn't decided to be baptized. But when we got to the end of those meetings, there was a friendship there. A friendship that goes on to this day where often I'll text my friend Hobbin and I'll say, Hobbin, how are you doing? Finally, later on, he decided to get baptized. He decided in another meeting to join the church. And I praise God for that. And to this day, Hobbin is still one of my close friends. And I would gladly go through that fall and through the disappointment, through doing that meeting, just to have that friendship throughout eternity. It's worth it. Love endures. Love is patient. Love is kind. 
Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself and is not puffed up. Again, we like for people to look at what we do in our lives and we like for them to say, good job. Or we like for them to affirm it. We like for people to, to say, you are doing an excellent job. You are amazing. You're beautiful. You're talented. All of these different things. But love is not puffed up. Love doesn't want that. Love is humble. William Carey was a man who impacted India in a a dramatic way. He was the first Protestant missionary to go to foreign soil, to go to a country that spoke another language. And in fact, talking about speaking other tongues, William Carey knew about 34 different languages, it's reported. He was getting the Bible into all of these different languages. India today would not be the way it is if it wasn't for him forging ahead and spreading the gospel to a people who had never heard it. So you imagine a guy like this, he has a lot to be proud of, a lot to be excited about in his life. Well, in India, they, have the, they had the caste system at the time. And one time he was there with uh, some, some important people in India. And as they were sitting there at dinner, there was a conversation that ensued where the person began to say to, to Carrie, so... I heard that you are a shoemaker. Now, a shoemaker is somebody that is one of the lowest, right? Somebody that we shouldn't uh, value very much. And he was trying to comment on his low birth. And he said, I understand, Mr. Carey, that you once worked as a shoemaker. Oh, no, your lordship, Carey replied. I was not a shoemaker, only a shoe repairman. I didn't just make any shoes, sir. I just repaired shoes. I'm even lower than that. Do you see how love is? The love that impacts the world, the love that Carrie had was a humble love. It wasn't puffed up. It didn't seek its own. It was a love that was humble. William Carey was the one who encouraged not only people to accept the gospel, but to minister to the lepers who'd been neglected. He watched out for the women and children who were being abused. He, he took care of so many people. He did practical ministry and it impacted the country of India. Verse 5, love does not behave rudely, does not seek its own. Love isn't selfish. This really boils down to the very essence of what love is. Love is focused on others before it even considers itself. This is amazing, isn't it? It's hard for us to grasp until we see Jesus. I think that's why in the Old Testament, sometimes the prophecies and things were so hard to grasp, and yet as it comes closer and closer, and we see Jesus finally revealing the loving character of the Father, it's beautiful what we see in Jesus That he lived to serve. He lived to give. And then he was willing to take it all the way to the place where he laid down his life for us. That describes the very character of God. The giving character that he would rather us to live than that he live if it were possible. Love does not seek its own, is not provoked, and thinks no evil. In the book... Uh, the, actually, in the Review and Herald, August 6, 1901, it says this, Love of self excludes the love of Christ. 
in our lives when we are focused on our own agenda, so focused on it that we can't be patient with other people, when, we're, when our schedule's interrupted or when we're talking to that person that's difficult to hold a conversation with and we don't love them, it's because of the self in us, right? It's, it's our own agenda, our own needs, our own wants that gets in the way of us truly loving that other person the way that God longs for us to love them. Testimonies for the Church, Volume 5, page 168, says, Love is unsuspecting. You know how it says it thinks no evil? Ever placing the most favorable construction upon the motives and acts of others. Love thinks no evil. Do you really believe that? (laughs) That, That if you love somebody, that you're going to always think the best possible thoughts about that person. That we won't take the time to criticize that person. Love is unsuspecting, ever placing the most favorable construction upon the motives and acts of others. Love will never needlessly expose the faults of others. It does not listen eagerly to unfavorable reports, but rather seeks to bring to mind some good qualities of the one defamed. You know, that could solve a lot of problems in our lives. If when somebody came to us and they said, did you hear what this person did? You won't believe how they treated me. And we said, you know what? Um, And we brought something positive out about them. We focused on the good in their character. And this is who God is. God is love. And I think oftentimes it's difficult for us to be able to live a life like this because of our conception of who God is. Because we don't really grasp the love that He has for us. Love thinks no evil. Don't get me wrong. Verse 6 continues and says this, does not rejoice in iniquity. Just because love doesn't think evil, it doesn't suspect what's wrong with a person, it also doesn't rejoice in the sinfulness that a person may be engaging in. Because if you really love somebody and they're going down the wrong path, then you care about them and you want to change and to help them in every possible way. Love does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. Sixteen descriptors of what this love is like. Paul wants for us to experience a more excellent way of doing ministry. No matter if we have the gift of prophecy, no matter if we have all faith, no matter if we know everything that there is to know about the Bible, but we don't have love, It's pointless. It makes no difference. It won't change lives. But when we enter into people's lives, when we draw close to them, when they know that we genuinely care about them and who they are and what they're going through, that changes everything. That makes all the difference in the world. Love never fails. Paul concludes this chapter in verse 13 saying, Now abide faith, hope, love these three but the greatest of these is love more great than any other characteristic that you could hope for is love and why is that it's because god is love so i'll be honest in looking at this as i've thought about my own life i've realized something there's a lot of things that i do that are selfish there's a lot of reasons that I go about even doing ministry and doing good for other people that in the end could just be shown to be selfish. It's just about me and what people think about me. So how 
do we experience this transformation? I mean, this is God's goal for us. This is his ideal for us. But have you ever tried to say, okay, I'm going to love that person today? I'm determined that today, I, today is going to be the day that every person I come into contact with, I will love them. It doesn't work out so well. In fact, I've even found that the more I pray for love, the more that I find that people try my patience during the day. And the more difficult experiences that I go through, and I'm like, oh, I just wanted to love today. And I'm not feeling very loving at the moment. The Review and Herald, July 21, says this, The unconverted heart cannot originate nor produce this plant of heavenly growth which lives alone and flourishes only where Christ reigns. When Jesus is head of your life, when he's reigning on the throne of your heart, that and that alone is the time when love can flourish. Love cannot live without action, and every act increases and strengthens and extends it. Love will prevail and gain the victory when argument and authority are powerless. If you think about that, that's really what this chapter is describing. It's describing that you can't live your life and love. That when you're going through your day and you come to that traffic jam, you come to that long line in the grocery store, you can't be loving about it and still be caring about your own agenda anymore. That's why Jesus had to say to us, no one can come after me unless he denies himself and takes up his cross and follows me that you too have the same purpose in your life that Jesus had of laying down his life, of saying, it's not about my life anymore. It's only about living for Jesus. It's only about, well, Jesus wasn't saying to live for Jesus. He was laying down his life so that you and I could have life. We only love because he first loved us. So as I've looked at this chapter, I've realized, you know, if I don't see these characteristics in my life, if I am finding that going and encountering other people that I don't love them, this should be a serious problem for me, number one. Because Jesus says that as you have done it unto the least of these, you've done it unto me. And in 1 John chapter 4, 20 and following verses, it says that if you say that you love God, but you don't love your brother, if you say that you love God who you can't see, but you don't love your brother who you can see, then you're a liar. It straight up calls you a liar. That's a challenging thing. There was once a teacher who put up a, a, a challenge to her students. She said to her students, here's the deal. Tomorrow, I want for you to bring the person that you despise most, a picture of that person. It could be Hitler, and you could come and bring a picture of Hitler. It could be your stepdad. You could come and bring a picture of your stepdad. Whatever it is, the person that you most despise in your life, the person that you most hate, come and bring that picture to school tomorrow. So the, t- the kids were kind of held back by that. They were thinking, well, what should I? Okay, I'm going to do this. And they brought the, the pictures the next day, and as they brought them in, she said, okay, we're going to tape them all up here on the board. And they taped them all up there on the board, and then she got out some darts. And she said, okay, here's the deal. You get to take these darts and you get to throw them at these pictures. And as they took these darts, they began to throw them at them. And they they were having so much fun that they would go and grab their dart again and they'd throw it at it again and trying to hit that person that they hated the most. Finally, when they had managed to totally decimate the pictures of the people that they hated, she went up to the board and she pulled down those pictures and she pulled down the the paper that had had been just under those pictures. And underneath of that was a beautiful picture 
of Jesus. So for now it had holes and was ripped and all torn apart. As you've done it to the least of these, my brethren, you've done it unto me. I want you to think about something. Think about the person right now in your life that you love the least. I'm not talking about that homeless person who stands there in the corner with a sign asking for food. I'm talking about the person that you love the least, the one that hurt you deeply, the one that has said things that you keep rehearsing in your mind and you can't stand to think about that person. Put that picture in your mind and the feelings that you feel there. And Jesus is saying, as you've done it to the least of these, you've done it to me. That hurts my heart to think about. Is that really how I'm treating the infinite loving God of the universe? I'm powerless to change that. I can't stop rehearsing those thoughts. Those thoughts continue to go through my mind. How do I experience this change? The unconverted heart cannot experience this change. Jesus says, you've got to be born again. I've got to create in you a clean heart. You've got to surrender yourself to me and allow me to give you a brand new heart. I remember that in those first days of ministry, even after that first experience where we failed miserably, it felt like, that I was determined to be successful. And I treated people around me, even in the midst of doing ministry, in ways that were totally unloving. You know, I had some coworkers who, when they would do something that I felt was not smart, I would let them know that on the spot. There was one day where, and I was honestly trying to defend my, my beautiful wife. She had a, a hurt knee at the time, and she was kind of limping. And, and we got to the end of this outreach where we were taking all these boxes of food to the homeless down in downtown Santa Cruz. And we pulled up and we had to unload all of these boxes out of the back of the Suburban. As we're unloading them out, I'm noticing that my wife is going over and grabbing these heavy boxes and carrying them to the cafeteria, limping, while this guy is standing there talking to somebody, watching my wife go by. And after we carried all these boxes, he finally says, oh, did you guys need help? I let him know that we needed help. I let him know clearly that we needed help. And you know what? I was right. It was not right what he was doing. It was wrong how he had just treated my wife. But you know what was worse? It was my attitude towards him. It was my own heart that had the biggest problem. And years later, it began to sink into me that love is patient. Love is kind. Love doesn't take into account a wrong suffered. And I began to feel convicted that what really needs to change more than anything else for my ministry to be effective is not for me to be able to preach better. That could help. It's not for me to be able to know the Bible better. That could help. But what's got to change is my heart. And that's the same thing for each and every one of us. What will enable you to share the gospel with your loved ones? What will enable you to share it with your neighbors is not just to know the Bible better. We need to know the Bible better. But it's to genuinely love like Jesus loves. One final verse I want you to look at in Matthew chapter 24. You know, we could look through each of these verses and we could, we could compare in the Bible how God has already done these things for us. When it says that love is patient, Second Peter chapter 2 and verse 9 says that 
God is long-suffering, not willing that any should be lost. He's not willing that any single one of you sitting here should be lost or that any person out there should be lost. And that's why time and history has continued to go on because God is patient and God is love. He doesn't ask us to do anything that he doesn't know that he already is. And because of who he is, he knows that it's the best thing for us. We could look at at Titus 3 and verse 4 that says, When the kindness of our God appeared to us, love is kind. And in bringing Jesus, we experience kindness. But as we look at the world that's spiraling down around us, it's crucial that we notice in Matthew 24, starting in verse 12, it says this, And because lawlessness will abound. First John tells us that sin is lawlessness. Because lawlessness will abound. The love of many will grow cold. We're seeing an increase of selfishness on our planet. We're seeing it spiraling out of control. We see it in our leaders. We see it in our schools. We see it in outlandish acts of evil that take place where people are taking people's lives even in church. And we see all these things happening and we know that love is growing cold. But look at what it goes on to say, verse 13. But he who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to the nations. And then the end will come. God has a plan. He has a plan that you and I will endure to the end through being filled with the Holy Spirit, Romans 5.5 5 says that hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured in your hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to you. And as you're filled with that love, that is what is going to change the world. And as that revelation of love takes place, and the world sees that, then the end will come. When the gospel is taken, when the good news of hearts changed is taken to the world, then the end will come. That's the promise that we can rely on. And friends, this morning, I just have to, to tell you that I can't wait for that day. I can't wait for the gospel to be preached to the whole world. I can't wait for what it says in Christ's Object Lessons, page 414. 15, it says, the last rays of merciful light, the last message of mercy to be given to the world is a revelation of his character of love. I can't wait for the world to see that God is love. And I can't wait for that. Because I'm sick of this world. I have to be honest. My grandma had a stroke yesterday. My grandma was given by the doctor 72 hours to live. And you know what? The last time I talked to my grandma, she said, I want you to know, Zach, I have peace with Jesus. And I'm not afraid to die. In fact, I'm ready for it. So I don't tell you that to make you feel sorry for my grandma or to make you feel sorry for me. Because the next thing I believe my grandma's going to see when she falls fully asleep is Jesus coming in the clouds. But life is short, friends. And there are people out there dying today who don't know Jesus, who haven't seen a revelation of His character of love. And we're going about our business as if this world can handle seeing Jesus without us. But the Bible is clear. 
It's you and I that reveal the love of Jesus to this world. And it's not just by preaching, but it could be by doing a, a acts of kindness for people. It could be by signing up when you go out in the lobby today to be an overnight chaperone for Echo. It could be just by taking a fresh meal to your neighbor. I don't know how God is leading you to love, but I know what love looks like because it's revealed right here. And this is the more excellent way. So in closing today, I want to challenge you to something specific Something that's written in the Review and Herald, page 21, 1904. It says this, The Lord desires to call the attention of the people to the 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians. That's the chapter that we just looked at, the chapter of love. And it says this, Read this chapter every day and from it obtain comfort and strength. This isn't for everybody. You may have your own devotional plan. You may already have the way that you go about experiencing the love of Jesus on a morning morning-by-morning basis. But today, I want to challenge some of you to begin reading this chapter every single day. I did this in the middle of my college experience. I began to read this chapter every day, and at the time, I wasn't planning to be a pastor. I wasn't planning to live for God. I was living a totally selfish and loveless life, but I knew I needed love in my life. And God changed my life through this chapter. And eventually you're going to find that it becomes memorized if you read it every day. And so then you can begin to re- recite it. But having studied through this chapter in, in more detail, I want to commit myself to every day going through this passage. Every day saying, God, would you reveal your love to me? Would you reveal the beautiful character that you want me to have? Would you help me to fall in love with you so that you can do that in me? Would you please pour out your Holy Spirit and lead me? in the more excellent way. Just go ahead and bow your heads with me. And if it's your desire specifically to commit to reading this chapter prayerfully every day and asking God to fill your heart with this heavenly plant of love, just go ahead and raise your hand as we pray. Father in heaven, here we are. We long for better gifts. We ask that you would pour out the gift of prophecy, that you'd pour out the gift of tongues, that you would enable us to minister to people through the power of the Holy Spirit. But more than anything, Lord, we want this more excellent way. Would you help us to fall so radically in love with you that it impacts how we love everybody else around us? And Lord, we recognize that that has to start by seeing who you are your loving character. Lord, may that be clearly revealed to us on a daily basis as we fix our eyes on the beauty of Jesus, I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.